I'll just be quiet now. It says it's streaming live right now. So yeah, it just for some reason, even when it says it's streaming, I get cut off. So here we go. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ. And this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. I had the pleasure of interviewing today's guest a while back. And he's still going to tell his wonderful story from pills to plants. But even more, what I'm interested in is to hear about this exciting research he's doing on one of my favorite subjects, one of my favorite topics, addiction. Please welcome Adam Sood. It's so great to see you. And I had no idea you're all the way in the Pacific Northwest now. Yeah. So it's it's great to be back uh, on the show. And, you know, you and I have known each other for a few years and we have a lot of mutual friends, Doug, uh, JP. And so these people were so instrumental in my recovery, uh, which uh, which I'll share right now. Um, I'm my name is Adam Sud and, and I grew up in Texas. I'm a seventh generation Texan. Uh, I'm also Jewish. So I grew up eating the standard American diet. Uh, wearing cowboy boots with a little bit of chutzpah. It was like burgers and barbecue and bagels and blintzes. Um, so the furthest thing from anything that could be considered uh, a plant-centered diet. And growing up, I had an amazing childhood. You know, my dad taught me how to play sports. He taught me how to play baseball and basketball and football. And my mom inspired my imagination and, uh, you know, really instilled in me the idea of, you know, dreaming big. And growing up, I played with my friends after school. We rode our bikes to and from middle school every single day. And the, but in spite of all of that, there was a few things that had a profound impact on me. I can remember being 10 years old and in summer in Texas. And in Texas in the summer, I was, you know, I was born in 1982. So, you know, it's early 90s and I'm running around basically in just nothing but a bathing suit all the time. And I go into my parents' bedroom to see what they're up to. And they asked me why I had love handles. And I'm 10 years old. I don't know what love handles are. So I sure don't know how I got them. And I can remember asking my parents, you know, what they, what do they mean by that? And they explained to me what they were. And I said, well, you know, it looks like dad has them. What was the problem? And they said, well, he's 40. You shouldn't have them. And within an instant, just like, like that, I went from completely loving and accepting myself to now believing there were conditions upon which I was allowed to love myself completely. And this was a kind of a, a scary situation because then it, it introduced the, 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 the possibility that if there's one condition to which I cannot accept myself, what are the others? And I started to always be hyper aware of other people's perception of me so that I could start to understand what were these conditions that would allow me to be accepting of myself. And at about age 12, I was diagnosed with ADHD and I was put on Ritalin. And this was just another... Uh, another example of a society of society telling me, here's something about you that doesn't work properly, that we don't accept, that we don't want to see. This isn't what the doctor was saying, but this was my perception of it. And they offered me a solution. And the solution came in the form of a pill. It was called Ritalin. And in the way that that was explained to me, I bought into this narrative that when I saw something about myself that I didn't like, or I saw something that other people didn't like. I could find something outside of myself to fix it or hide it from the world. And in high school, I moved to Austin, Texas. My prescription from Ritalin was switched to Adderall. And I didn't have a lot of friends because I didn't know anyone. And quickly it became uh, very, I became very aware of the fact that when people knew that I had Adderall, I was very popular. I got invited to parties. Uh, people wanted to hang out with me. And so this made me very happy. 
I wanted to be somebody that other people wanted around. I wanted to have something to offer other people that they couldn't get from somebody else. And I can remember using Adderall as a recreational drug for the first time. It was like, boom, all of a sudden, everything that I believed that was broken about me was completely fixed. I was hooked to what this substance did for me. I was late to start puberty. I was kind of that awkward freshman kid. I mean, most freshmen are awkward anyways, but I was even more so. Um, and I, I was a little bit overweight and Adderall is an amphetamine. That's what the stuff is. So weight loss was now easy. I can look like the person I thought everyone wanted me to look like. I had very poor study habits. Um, and my dad and I would get into constant arguments about my inability to focus and study. And if I'm on Adderall, all of a sudden, I appear to be the person I thought my dad wanted to be, me to be in regards to being a student. I lost the weight. I made friends. I had girlfriends. I got a scholarship to the college that I wanted to go to. And in college, things took a turn because more was never enough. Never enough was a constant concern. Where will I get more? How much will it cost? Where will I get the money to pay for it? All of this was just this reoccurring you know, mathematical equation in my mind all, all, all day long. And it became so overwhelming that I dropped out of college. I moved back to Austin and I quickly fell into the life of criminal drug addict behavior where I was buying and selling drugs on the street. I was doctor shopping where you have multiple doctors prescribing the same medication without them knowing about each other, which is a felony. I was forging prescriptions. I would do anything to any, anybody in order to get what I needed for me, no matter what happened to you. And I was consistently treating my family like absolute garbage. And I started to become incredibly depressed and isolated. And my, I found out that when I couldn't get Adderall, fast food was an amazing substitute. And my weight reached about 350 pounds. I was consuming about 5,000 calories of fast food on a regular basis. And for six days at a time, I would consume 450 milligrams of Adderall in a 24 hour period. The average prescription for Adderall is about 10 milligrams. So I was doing 450 milligrams every 24 hours, nonstop for six days straight without sleep. Uh, I would enter into a drug-induced psychosis. Um, I would start to hallucinate and my life was falling apart. And my dad at the time, this was in 2010, he came in and he offered me the opportunity to attend an event hosted by Rip Esselstyn. And I got to see amazing presenters. And look, I'm gonna tell you guys, I didn't wanna go to this thing. I didn't know who Rip was. I didn't care who Rip was. The only thing I cared about was that I knew if I said yes to my dad, I could get him to keep giving me money. And I went to this event and I heard amazing presenters like Rip, like his dad, Chef AJ, you were there. Um, I, remember, and, I actually uh, remember you, Adam. Yeah. And um, uh, JP, who's on your show regularly, was there. And I was presented with this opportunity to believe a story that I was capable of owning my health and well-being. That what was going on with me was a reasonable response to an abnormal way of living. And I wish I could tell you that everything that was told to me was enough of a motivating factor for me to change my life. I wish I could tell you, I spent seven days there. I watched Chef AJ do these amazing presentations and said, you know what, that's it. I'm gonna change my life. But I just, I wasn't willing to give up what was allowing me to escape a life that was just too painful a place to be. Until August 21st of 2012, um, I uh, attempted to end my life by drug overdose. Um, I was 30 years old. Um, life just hurt in every sense of the way, uh, of the meaning, spiritually, physically, emotionally. 
Um, it was just too painful of an existence. And I had tried for about a year to just hate myself enough, to hate my life enough so that I could believe that the only option was to change for the better. I was constantly practicing self-harm. I would beat myself in front of the mirror. I would shout horrible things at myself in the mirror just to hate, hate, hate all day long. And the only thing that would come out of that was it would further disconnect me from the belief that I would ever reconnect to the experience of being alive. I survived my, uh, my suicide. Um, I checked into rehab where I was diagnosed with type two, type two diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, erectile dysfunction, bipolar disorder, suicidal depression, anxiety disorder, sleep disorder, attention deficit disorder, and obsessive compulsive personality disorder. And I was put on a cabinet's worth of medication for life. And I'm sitting in this doctor's office and he's telling me that I am all of these things. I am an addict. I am a diabetic. I am this person with heart disease. And that that's who I'm gonna to have to be for the rest of my life. I'm gonna to have to accept that medication is my future. I'm gonna to have to accept the possibility of amputation, blindness. And I was transported back to that week at the retreat where I was told another story that there's nothing wrong with me whatsoever. That this is my body sending me a very important signal sending me a message that's begging me to look at how I'm moving through the world and consider a different way. And I decided that that was the story I was gonna buy into. And when I left rehab after 37 days, I checked into a sober living facility where I adopted a plant-based diet. And I love to tell this part of the story because I have to go, when you check into this sober living, you go up to the house manager and you ask the house manager to, to put foods on the grocery list. So I walked up to the house manager in the first week and his name, his last name is literally hamburger. So I love to tell everybody that my plant-based journey started with a hamburger, but within four months of adopting this diet, I completely reversed my type two diabetes, my high blood pressure, my high cholesterol and my erectile dysfunction. As a result of the plant-based diet, as well as uh, group therapy, mindfulness, movement, Within one year, I had lost over 100 pounds and was off of every single medication I was put on in rehab, including all of my psych meds. I've lost 180 pounds of as of today. Every single diagnosis, including the psych diagnosis, diagnoses have been removed from my chart. I'm the most connected that I've ever been in my entire life. I feel a connection to meaningful bonds that I wanna show up and be present for in an authentic way, greater than I've ever experienced in my life. I have, I've been in recovery for over eight years continuously. Um, I'm very dedicated to my recovery. I'm very dedicated to uh, positive change on a daily basis. And that is why I'm so passionate about what I'm doing now. And what I'm doing now is I looked at my recovery journey. I looked at my recovery journey in comparison to the other people that I went through recovery with. And I spent 10 months in the sober living facility. And during those 10 months, I was with 12 to 14 other guys and we would all go to the same therapy program, four days a week of group therapy. We would all go to the same gym. We lived in the same house. There's a glaring difference. Most of them were eating either a somewhat healthier Western diet or a very traditional standard American diet. And I had adopted a plant-based diet. And as a result of the end of those 10 months, I was off of every medication I was put on. I was the healthiest I'd ever been. I was more connected to myself than I'd ever been. And the majority of the people I went through sobriety with were either on more medications, on the same medications, but higher dosages, had gained weight and were diagnosed with multiple chronic diseases. 
And I said, this is really interesting. What does the research say about nutrition and addiction recovery? And that's when I discovered that there has never been a single study ever done of any diet of any kind and its effects on early addiction recovery outcomes. And I said, wow, this is a, uh, this is a glaring hole in the puzzle uh, for addiction recovery. And so as of January of this year, I launched what is called the Infinite Study. The Infinite Study is the very first controlled trial investigating the effects of a nutrient-dense diet on early addiction recovery outcomes. It's a groundbreaking research. We are incredibly excited. I have an unbelievable team. Uh, the doctors on the study are none other than doctors Dean and Aisha Sherzai, who are the authors of the Alzheimer's Solution. They're also the world's leading authority on cognitive longevity. They are the uh, founders of the Healthy Minds Initiative, and they run the Loma Linda Brain Health um, Center. Um, I also have Dr. Frank Cusimano as our microbiome specialist. And Tara Kemp is the lead investigator. She is an amazing individual doing incredible work uh, for her PhD at NEU right now in psychosocial health. So I would love to discuss with you, Chef AJ, uh, all the intricacies of plant-based nutrition, addiction, and the study, if you're interested, because I think that you are an amazing person to have this conversation with, because you and I share a similar background. Absolutely. I had a suicide attempt on the 1st of April in a different year than you, 1982. So I feel like we're kindred spirits, both with weight loss. I mean, different drugs, but we both really understand it. And I don't think a lot of people in the plant-based world really give it enough credence. And, and, And it's tough because you know, like I was very surprised when I got the award for uh, the Vegan Hall of Fame at Summerfest because the ethical, even though I'm an ethical vegan, they often don't like me because I promote such a healthy diet and they say things like, well, that's making it too hard for people to be vegan. I'm not worried about how hard it is for people to be vegan. I'm worried about the addicts and I'm yes. worried that that all the vegan, deli- I mean, and it's delicious by the way, and it's plentiful, all oh, yeah. that junk food just, it doesn't help the people that suffer from food addictions. And that's where I put my focus on. So, uh, so thank you for the work you're doing. And I'm just curious, how are you going to go about it? Did you find a treatment center that's going to work with you? Exactly. So when I first got started in wanting to create this research study, the first and most important factor was finding a research study that would allow for the opportunity to run this study on its population. Now, we found an amazing treatment center in Austin, Texas called Infinite Recovery. And what we offer the oppor- what we offer to the to the actual patients of this treatment center is an opportunity. This isn't mandatory. It's an opportunity to be a part of this study. And what you do is within 24 hours of exiting detox, you are given the opportunity to join the research study and choose whether you want to be on the treatment diet, which is a plant-based diet, or the control diet which is a standard American sort of elevated Western diet. It is meat, eggs, and dairy and oil, but it is the removal of a lot of processed foods. So when we were looking at it, oh, they actually do eat a lot of plants. This is is gonna be great because what a great comparison to take a diet that isn't an absolute garbage diet because I mean, I think any diet would show improvement against that. Um, And we offer them nutrition education that relates to the dietary protocol that they have chosen. So we have videos from Dr. Michael Clapper. We have, uh, we showed them the pleasure trap by Doug Lyle. We have curriculum created by Drs. Dean and Aisha Sherzai, all to gain self-efficacy. The self-efficacy that is gained by knowing the benefit that your dietary protocol offers you. We also offer a standard ADA nutrition education for the control diet. 
Um, and we look at how each of these diets plus nutrition education create changes in various outcomes. So we are looking at specific blood biomarkers. Now, Chef AJ, you and I know what we can expect in regards to blood biomarkers. We know what's gonna happen to their lipid profile. We know what's gonna happen to their, uh, to their weight, to their blood pressure. We, but we're also looking at omega-3, which is uh, important in brain health. We're looking at high sensitivity C-reactive protein, which is a measurement for inflammation. We're looking at various vitamin levels. And then we're also measuring something called the microbiome. And I know this has become a very popular topic lately, what with Dr. B's recent book, Fiber Fuel. But for those of you who don't know what the microbiome is, the microbiome is essentially four to six pounds of bacteria that exist within your gut. And they, they perform things for your body that your body cannot do for itself. One of, one, one of them specifically is the creation of nutrients that do cross the blood-brain barrier into the brain that are essential for the formation of specific neurotransmitters. Everybody has heard the amazing statistic that 90% of your serotonin and 50% of your dopamine are created in your gut. But what we don't know, or what's new and newly known is that those neurotransmitters don't cross the blood-brain barrier. But there's nutrients that are formed by the bacteria, the beneficial plant-fed bacteria in your gut that help with the formation of specific neurotransmitters in your brain. So the health of your gut is directly related to the health of the neurotransmitter production in your brain. What I really like to talk about in order to explain to people how impactful the gut microbiome is, is if I was to take Chef AJ right now, and if I was to count all the cells that make up you, your human cells, they would number roughly 10 trillion. And if I was to count the number of cells that make up your unique gut microbiome. Chef AJ, your gut microbiome has roughly 300 trillion cells. So if we were to count up all of the cells that exist within the body and make up the body of Chef AJ right now, Chef AJ, you are less than 10% you, which is an amazing statistic in understanding the impact that the gut microbiome has on every single aspect of your overall health. I like what Dr. B says, it says everything that's living either has a microbiome or is a microbiome. It is that important to the health of everything on this planet. So we're looking at how changes in the gut microbiome relate to changes in your blood biomarkers and how both of those relate to changes in validated scales of measuring various mental health outcomes. Our primary outcome is resiliency. So when we talk about recovery and sobriety, I think it's important to differentiate the two. Sobriety is simply a term used for an individual who no longer uses a destructive substance or a destructive behavior. Recovery is something that's harder to define. And I like to define recovery as a symptom of becoming whole. And recovery is dependent upon being incredibly resilient, having the ability to be faced with a difficult situation, dark parts of ourselves, have the resiliency, the strength, and the grace to move through it with positivity. That's resiliency. And that is a huge and powerful factor in recovery. So our primary outcome is looking at resiliency. We're also looking at self-compassion, anxiety, depression, mania, eating disorder scales, obsessive compulsive drug use, and various other markers. And so what I liked about this is that we're looking at how diet and nutrition education impact mental health outcomes that are applicable to the entire human population. Because what's unique about the addiction recovery population is that people who are at end stage substance abuse 
are forced to do the work that every single human will have to do to some degree at some point in their life. What's unique about addiction recovery population is that if they don't do the work now, tomorrow is far less promised to them than the average individual. So this study will be, will be applicable to every single human on the planet. It is really at its core, a mental health study that is being conducted on addiction recovery population, which also speaks to the efficacy of how we treat addiction recovery. To no longer look at it simply as a dependency model, but treating the human who suffers from a pain that's too difficult to understand. And when first given the opportunity to escape that pain with substance, it was so successful that they grabbed a hold of it with everything they could. It's incredible. People are just loving this. <laughs> so one of the things that I, I find really interesting about um, nutrition and uh, recovery, and, and you, and, you and I can share this, is that it is a daily practice of self-care and self-love. It is a daily affirmation of recovery. I know for me, when I was early on in my recovery process, getting up every single day and being comfortable with being uncomfortable and making a, a, a statement to myself with the food that I put on my plate that I'm choosing today to be about health. This is a statement about who I am, what I'm worth and, what I, and, and how worthy I am of the life that I have right now. Not when I lose the weight, not when I reverse the disease, but in this moment, I'm worth giving myself these incredibly healing foods, making a statement to myself about what my recovery means to me and how valuable I see myself in this moment. And moving through that mindset of not removal of destructive lifestyle habits, but the increase of positive lifestyle habits, put me in a, in a frame of mind where I noticed myself moving in ways I hadn't moved in a long time. I saw myself sitting still in a way that I hadn't been able to in a long time. And I connected with that in a way that made me feel really good about myself. And then I thought about how was I able to achieve this? It's because of the diet, partly because of the dietary changes that I've made. And that helped me create a loving and meaningful connection with the food that I put on my plate. And once that happens, guys, listen to me. Once you fall in love with this lifestyle, the results take care of themselves. The goal for adopting a plant-based diet should not be about reversing disease. It should be about creating a meaningful and loving connection to this lifestyle. Because when you do that, you'll want to do it for the rest of your life and the results will follow. They have to. They simply have to. Think about it like running a race. If you run a race, not only can you not see the finish line when you start, you never have to see it, okay? All you have to do is focus on your place, your step, and your breath. Essentially, related to diet, the, the meal that you're making, what you're putting on your plate, and how much you enjoy it. If you focus on the act of running, you'll get to the finish line without ever looking at it. If you fall in love with the act of running, you're gonna run for the rest of your life. And that's the analogy that I like to use when we're talking about lifestyle change. And especially when we're talking about it in recovery, having a meaningful connection to a lifestyle habit that brings you joy and positive change is hugely impactful in increasing your statistical likelihood of long-term success and sobriety. Are you going to be able to go down there and actually work with the people to collect the data or how, how are you going to do this? I can't do that what, because it's a, it's a conflict of interest since uh, I'm the one des helping design the study and funding it. But what we do is we have systems in place to where the data is captured in infinite and they're linked to our system at NAU. So NAU gets real-time data uploads. 
on food frequency questionnaires, on the mental health questionnaires, on the physical health uh, biomarkers like the lab results. So we're getting data all the time. And we're also capturing stories, qualitative stories that go along with the quantitative data. Because look, I can give somebody all the data. Jeff, AJ, you'll know this better than anybody. You can share data with somebody all they want. And it's very, it seems like it's gonna be very effective and most of the time it's not. But when you share a story, a human story of how that data changed somebody's life, all of a sudden it becomes undeniable. You cannot deny the power of the data once it becomes a human story. And that is because humans are story creatures. Throughout the history of humanity, we have been telling each other stories that have inspired us and, and motivated us to do wonderful things. So we found it very important that we're gonna be capturing stories of these individuals going through recovery. And some of the stories are just like, they bring me to tears. People will say, this isn't my first time. This isn't my second time. This isn't my fourth time in recovery. And I'm in the plant-based treatment group. And this time feels different. I feel a sense of calm. I feel a sense of connection to the world around me that I didn't expect. What I find funny is that we, we thought it was gonna be difficult to get people into the treatment diet, into the plant-based diet. But thanks to Game Changers, it's actually been harder to get them into the control diet because um, they say that like, I got into it because I saw this documentary Game Changers and I thought I wanted to be stronger. And they get into it and they notice this connection, this sense of calm. And they say that they had no intention of thinking it was going to work. They just thought it was a popular thing. And now they see it as part of their recovery process. And that's the kind of thing, those stories in connection with the data are the kinds of things that are gonna really help motivate people because the academia, they're gonna look at the data and that's great. I, I, I'm, I'm so excited that we're gonna be bringing data to the world of recovery that doesn't exist. That literally at the end of this study, we're now gonna be approaching addiction recovery in a way that's never been approached before. And you, you can't deny the fact that diet plays a role. It will be undeniable, well, but for those who, but for those who are in recovery, they don't care about the data. They want to see somebody that's done it and has changed their life and made their life more meaningful. Well, you know, it plays a role in everything. <laughs> yes, it does. You know, it does. are you familiar with Kathleen de Maison who wrote Potatoes Not Prozac? Because she, she discovered, you know, like their old joke is like all the donuts at AA meetings. She was yeah. running a men's treatment program for alcoholism when she noticed all they were doing was eating sugar. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, and the thing is like the, the, the problem from a cultural standpoint is far more complex. Like I understand that there are people who, who are in recovery that go to AA meetings regularly because those donuts, those cookies are probably most of what they get to eat for the entire day. Like I understand that situation for a lot of people, but I also understand that we do need, we do know that right now, if a person checks into treatment right now, they check into a rehab hospital, they're gonna be fed three times a day. They're not only gonna be fed three times a day, they're gonna be fed the exact same thing as everybody else. And they're gonna be fed at the exact same time as everybody else. So why not investigate the impact that that has on the ability to either help or hinder their recovery process in the early stages? We know the effects that abstinence has when we take someone's substance away from them for 28 days. We know the effect that it has on brain chemistry, on, bio, uh, on the, their physical body biochemistry. We know the impact that different therapy modalities have. We have data on it. We know what exercise does in that setting. We've never investigated food and it's about time. It's beyond about time because there are 33 million people worldwide who struggle with substance abuse. 3.3 will die. 
It is the leading cause of years lived with disability worldwide right now. And the relapse rate for treatment is 70%. And what I mean by that is 70% of people who check into treatment today will check back into treatment within one year. Now, I'm not saying that because diet has never been studied that that's the reason why the number is so high. But if we can reduce that percentage, any amount, we're helping people. And that's important. Are you familiar with Dr. Joel Furman's book, Fast Food Genocide? I am. Yeah. It's interesting because I, I, you know, I talked with Joel uh, about six months before we started the study. He was incredibly excited about it. Um, and he's got a huge belief system on the, nutri the lack of nutritional density in foods contributing to junk food cravings. And we know that people who check into treatment, no matter if they're overweight or underweight, are always malnourished. They're always undernourished. And this is partly because of the fact that people who are at end-stage substance abuse will always prioritize using over any other lifestyle factor. Using will always come before sleep, hygiene, food, all of it. So people who check into treatment are typically either overfed and undernourished or underfed and undernourished. And so a, a nutrient-dense diet is going to be an amazing way to sort of reset that nutritional, uh, you know, the, the nutrient density of an individual's lifestyle so that they can sort of get back to zero and really start to approach therapy, movement, uh, uh, mindfulness in a much more effective way. That's yeah. Just, yeah, that, I just can't, how long do you think it'll take to get the results? So we've been, like I said, we've been running the study now for about 10 and a half months. We will finish the participant part of the study, the actual capturing of participants in December. So it's a 10 week intervention, meaning that the first three weeks of the study take place in the rehab hospital. And then we follow individuals for another seven weeks in the sober living setting. And then we follow up with them at six months. So we will complete the participant part of the, the initial 10 week intervention, probably middle of January. And then we start full data analysis. So we're hoping to have a manuscript published in the medical journals, uh, probably middle of next year. Um, one of the things that I would really like to ask, because you have so many amazingly passionate followers, is that I do have a GoFundMe campaign. And everybody thinks, oh, in order to make a difference, I have to make a large donation. I have to donate 100, 200, 500, $1,000. You don't. You could donate $5. You could donate $2 to the campaign. Every amount makes a difference. And this GoFundMe campaign is to fund the microbiome sequencing, which is really going to be impactful. So... If anybody wants to, the study is called the Infinite Study. There's a link for the GoFundMe uh, uh, on the, uh, if you actually go into GoFundMe.com and search the Infinite Study, you'll find it. And um, like I said, be a part of this. We, I would really love to have Chef AJ's population join me in creating this data, bringing this data to the world so we know, because we know, we know what food does for physical health. We know what it does for longevity. We have epidemiological studies, population studies that show how our mental health benefits on populations that consume higher amounts of fruits and vegetables. Let's look at this. Let's investigate how we can help those who are struggling right now with substance abuse and increase their likelihood of long-term success. Yeah. So uh, Peggy says, I'm an alcoholic sober for years. My food addiction really kicked up after getting sober. Amazing parallels. Yeah. And you know, that's because we're... Uh, you know, when we look at uh, addiction recovery and we're so individuals who struggle with substance abuse are trying to escape pain. 
We're trying to escape pain and we've been doing it for so long that a lot of us are very uncomfortable with the experience of discomfort. And so junk food is an amazingly available tool to escape discomfort. And so it makes sense that that's an easy transition. However, that short-term relief does not give you long-term benefit. And we need to bring the data to the world to show you, to show everybody the long-term benefit and short-term benefit that happens within the body. And then also for that individual, if you haven't watched Doug Lyle's TED Talk, The Pleasure Trap, it's a really great explanation of the actual biological mechanism that is compelling individuals like myself when I was early in recovery and every single person addicted to the standard American diet, that there's a biological compulsion that is occurring. Highly recommend everybody watch. I think everybody in America and the world should be watching that TED Talk every day. I just think it's, it's phenomenal. It's hugely impactful in my recovery. I want to read a comment by Claudia. She says, it makes sense to give patients in the recovery process ultimate nutrition. Also avoiding foods that are known to be addictive that might be either substitutions or even triggers to further addiction. And you know, it's yeah. not just people that are in recovery from substance abuse that needs this nutrition or this study. I mean, what about all the people that I, well, there's no volunteering now, but I was volunteered at a cancer hospital. They're not given very good nutrition either while they're going right. through their process. Yeah. I mean, like I said, and you know, Chef AJ, you know, as much as anybody is that eating more plants benefits every aspect of your life. Whether you're talking about longevity, whether you're talking about fitness, whether you're talking about mental health, whether you're talking about recovery from a, like an illness, whether it's a chronic illness, whether it's an infection, whether it's a virus, eating more plants is always going to benefit you in the short term and the long run. So I believe in every scenario, more plants, the better. And we're, the, the data backs that up 100%. And I also think it's important to talk about addiction in a very uh, uh, honest way, right? So the, the traditional narrative suggests that the problem is the substance, that it is the food itself that is addicting, that it is the heroin itself that is addicting, that it is the cocaine itself that is addicting. But there's a difference between chemical dependency and addiction. So for example, Chef AJ, you have a very connected life. You have, you have a meaningful bond with yourself that you want to show up and be present for. You have people in your life that you want to show up and be present for. You have a purpose beyond yourself that you want to show up and be present for. You also have a future that makes sense in a meaningful way. You have a longevity, a health uh, future that makes sense to you. You have a financial future that makes sense to you. If someone were to offer you addictive food like candy, whatever, and you ate a bunch of it, and then the next day they were, they were to say, do you want to keep eating this? You have a statistical likelihood, a very high statistical likelihood of saying no, because you want to be present in your life for these meaningful bonds. The same thing goes with drugs. Somewhere to offer you cocaine at this point in your life as connected in the work that you've done on yourself. And then they came to you again and said, do you want to keep doing it? You have a very high statistical likelihood of saying no, because you have these meaningful bonds in your life that you want to show up and be present for. Now let's take somebody who's on the opposite end of the spectrum. They're unwell. Maybe they're overweight, maybe they're underweight. They don't have a loving and meaningful bond with themselves that they wanna show up and be present for. They're disconnected from meaningful relationships in their life and from a purpose beyond themselves. They don't have a meaningful relationship with the natural world around them. And they don't have a future that makes sense to them. And in that state, existence is painful. Showing up and be, being present is painful. Now, if I were to offer this person cocaine or heroin, the relief from that pain would feel so successful that they would grab a hold of it for dear life 
And if I were to offer them the opportunity to continue doing it, the opportunity to continue escaping that pain is so compelling that they will say yes. There's a British journalist named Johan Hari who wrote a book called Lost Connections. And he defines addiction uh, in this way. He says, addiction at its core is about not wanting to be present in your life because your life has become too painful a place to be. So I think it's important that we look at addiction and chemical dependency in two different, in two different ways. Chemical dependency is real. If someone takes heroin long enough, you take it away from them, they're gonna go through painful withdrawals, but that is not addiction. And right now we can use food in a way to help as a vehicle to reconnect to those meaningful bonds in life, give people a greater opportunity to see that connection and reconnection is possible. That's interesting because so many people, Adam, even people in the plant-based community don't even believe in addiction when it comes to certain foods. And I was yeah. recently interviewed for a, an emotional eating summit. And I, I, mm. I was wondering why they wanted me because I don't believe in emotional eating, at least not the way that other people do. I believe it in the way that Dr. Doug Lyle has taught me is that people don't eat food for emotional reasons, they take drugs. And when people emotionally eat, they're not eating arugula. There's no arugula anonymous. They're eating the <laughs> drug-like foods. You know what I mean? Right, exactly. It's, you know, the thing is that we, we do have to take into account that people are trying to escape pain. And some foods are really, really successful at helping you do that. And so there is a bonding that happens with the behavior that allows you to escape that pain. And it is that bond that occurs that is very difficult to let go of because it feels right. It feels incredibly successful. And when you're in the midst of that pain, getting, trying to convince somebody that the bond that they've formed with that behavior is wrong and destructive is very hard to do. Because from a biological standpoint, everything about it feels successful. And so we need to look at treating the whole human and the lifestyle around them. This is, I mean, this, the answer around addiction is not one. There's not a single answer. But food is part of the answer. I like to say to people, I like to explain it in this way. Eating a plant-based diet did not create long-term recovery for me, but long-term recovery for me doesn't exist without it. And so, so yeah, go ahead. I was, excuse me, there's a question that Nina wrote speaking of long-term recovery. She says, do you still have to attend meetings and have you ever relapsed? I, I've never relapsed. Um, I do not go to AA meetings. Um, regularly. I didn't really connect with the AA model. Not that I don't think AA is incredibly successful and valuable. Um, I started doing a Buddhist-based recovery uh, uh, thing called Smart Recovery. There's also a group called Dharma Punks, which is a, 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 a group called Against the Stream, where it was a meditation-based inner work. Um, and I found that to be highly successful for me. But at the end of the day, whatever system you use, that creates community. And that's really what I think the biggest, most successful aspect of AA is, is that you get to walk into a room of people who know what you're going through and believe you when you say everything that's, that's hurting, right? When you say like, for whatever reason, I, you know, I'm, I, I know I'm a good person, I just can't stop using. They're gonna believe you. And that is rare given the stigma that we have around addiction. And so for the first time you feel accepted completely and that is a huge part of what needs to shift culturally. We need to have, and like today, woke up, found out that the state of Oregon has just decriminalized every single illegal substance. And that is huge because when you criminalize a substance, you actually criminalize the user. You ensure that people who are struggling with substance abuse, people that are stuck in situations they cannot figure out on their own, 
the means to which they continue to use are through the most violent, criminal, and uncontrolled means possible. When you decriminalize it, you create opportunity for when people need to use, they can use it safely. And you use those funds that were originally used to criminalize individuals, and you create programming for recovery and connection. I think we need to make that shift culturally. You know, it'd be interesting once you get the results from this study, and I'm sure they're gonna be profound and amazing and just what you're hoping for, to do something like that in nursing homes and in prisons where they're also it. being fed, fed, uh, fed substandard food. There was some amazing work that was done. There were some early studies done in prisons on plant-based nutrition. And they found that when they fed inmates plant-based nutrition, violent incidences dropped, which I find interesting. Now, we don't know the mechanism specifically that created that response, but I, it is a compelling piece of data. Yeah, so you said somebody wrote in with a question. I'd love to answer. Yes, it's, it's actually not an addiction, but it's something that you, I know you would know. And it's, yes, you wrote in. So thank you for that. And we always appreciate that because we for yeah. sure will ask them. So Melissa said, I would like to ask Adam if mastering diabetes would help someone that is a type one diabetic if they have no pancreas. And if you'd like to talk about your work with mastering diabetes, yes. please feel free because we love Robbie and Cyrus here. Absolutely. So first of all, the answer is yes. Um, and, I, and I can explain that in just a second. But um, yeah, so I work with Mastering Diabetes. Uh, I am a food addiction and diabetes coach with Mastering Diabetes. And um, it is a program, it's an online coaching program that helps people reverse insulin resistance through the use of low fat, whole food, plant-based nutrition. And in fact, we have a virtual summit coming up. Chef AJ is a part of it. Um, uh, coming up on the weekend of the 14th. So if you want to go to the Mastering Diabetes website, masteringdiabetes.org backslash retreats. You can sign up for it, but let me explain why it helps everybody who's suffering with blood glucose variability. So whether you're type one diabetic or type two diabetic, insulin resistance occurs in the same way. The only difference between a type one diabetic and a type two diabetic or a non-diabetic is that type one and type 1.5, people with autoimmune diabetes, their pancreas is no longer capable of secreting adequate amounts of insulin which means that they just simply have to inject their insulin from outside of the body. Everything else in regards to how effective that insulin is operates the same. And what insulin resistance is, is the storage of excess fatty acids within tissues that are not designed to store large quantities of fatty acids. And I'll explain it really quickly. An individual eats a standard diet that is much higher in saturated fats specific, and a lot of them coming from animal products and, and highly processed oils. Some of that fat is burned as energy. Some of it is stored in your adipose tissue. Your adipose tissue is everywhere. It's your body fat. It's actually the only tissue in your body designed to store large quantities of fatty acids. Now, some fatty acids make their way into tissues that are not designed to store large quantities of fatty acids. And we're going to, when we're talking about diabetes, we're talking about your muscle cells and your liver. Now, fatty acids are stored in your muscle cells in the form of something called a lipid droplet. We all know about glycogen. Glycogen is how your muscles and your cells store carbohydrate. So think of a lipid droplet as the glycogen form of energy. Over the course of time, this lipid droplet starts to grow larger and larger and larger inside of the cell. And pretty soon there's too much energy stored inside the cell. Within your cells, you have something called insulin receptor substrate molecules. IRS molecules, and you can think of them just like the IRS. They are accounting for the amount of energy inside of the cell. 
they notice the lipid droplet has gotten too big and they go to the insulin receptor, which sits on the outside of the muscle cell and tells them, listen, when insulin brings you glucose, I need you not to talk to them. I need you to send them back into the bloodstream because we have too much energy stored in here. And we need to take care of this problem before it gets worse. So this individual goes and they eat a mango or a banana or a sweet potato. Chef AJ and I is one of our favorite foods. And it breaks it down to a lot of different things, but mostly it's broken down into glucose. Glucose enters the blood, insulin is released or injected. That insulin grabs a hold of the glucose molecule, goes up to the cell of this individual's muscles, knocks on the cell door and says, hey, that's some glucose, do you wanna take it up? And the insulin receptor says, listen, can you see the size of this lipid droplet? The IRS molecules in here said, I'm not allowed to talk to you until this is taken care of. I need you to stay in the blood and in, when and only when this is solved, will I talk to you again? That is what causes blood glucose variability issues. Now it's reversed by eating a low fat, high carbohydrate diet. In that environment, the lipid droplet is given the opportunity to be used as energy because no more fatty acids continue to migrate into the cells. So the mitochondria of the cell, your energy burning factories, start to burn up that lipid droplet and it shrinks over the course of time. And as it shrinks, the insulin receptors come back online and your body becomes more capable of metabolizing glucose. The insulin that you inject as a type one becomes more effective. You have essentially become insulin sensitive. So whether you are non-diabetic, pre-diabetic, type two diabetic or type one diabetic, this method of eating a low fat, whole food, plant-based diet will absolutely increase your quality of life. What do you think about exercise in terms of helping people re addiction recovery as well as the I, diet? I think it is hugely impactful. I think that what we need to look at is how humans move through this world as a fundamental organism, right? As a species, we are designed to eat, sleep, move, drink, and get in the sun, right? So I think that every human should, I, I think it's important for humans, all of us, to look at the fundamental behaviors and habits that we have throughout the day that connect us to those core values of living as a, as a species of human. Are we getting enough sleep? Are we drinking enough water? Are we getting enough sunshine? Are we moving our bodies enough? And are we eating a healthy diet? All of these factors, create the environment for optimal physical health and mental health. There's a huge aspect of meditation that occurs with exercise because exercise is the detachment from the emotional self and the connection to the physical self. You are very place, step and breath in your movement. And that is incredibly important in a world where we have a lot going on. There's a lot of stress, especially right now. I think everybody knows what we're talking about. Uh -huh. And, and um, ex exercise is also good for diabetics, especially hugely important for diabetics. The more lean muscle you have, the more insulin sensitive you are, because as you create more lean muscle, your body creates more insulin receptors. So you have the opportunity to metabolize more glucose, the more you move your body. Also exercise, when your heart rate reaches a certain rate, your body employs something called the GLUT4 transporter, which allows you to metabolize glucose independent of insulin. So if you eat, a, eat your meal and then you go for a 15 minute walk, you will be more insulin sensitive after that meal than if you hadn't moved. Yeah, that's so important. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, there in the show notes is the link and some people said they've already donated. So please check out. That's so, I so appreciate that. So if, and if you haven't just check out the link, check out the nonprofit, 
you don't have to make a contribution. You can share it on your profile, on your social media platforms. Awareness is as important as a donation. So I really appreciate everyone who's donating, everyone who's listening to this. I, Chef AJ, thank you so much for the opportunity to be having this conversation with Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Um, do you think we'll ever have a, a book from you to look forward to? Because you, you know, so, your story is amazing. Even even if it wasn't the plant-based part, just the fact that you know you recovered from such a serious addiction. So interestingly enough, um, I within the last six months, I've uh, been signed to a major literary agent, and we are writing the book uh, about my study and my story. Um, so look for that, uh, look for announcements about that at the, probably the end of next year. Well, then we so, can have you back on to promote the book when it's absolutely, out. Absolutely. Absolutely. I so, hope you'll do an audible version and read it because you, you're, you're, you're great at articulating. Oh, thank you. I would love to do that. And I do have to thank you, you know, Chef Ada, you were there from the beginning of my story and, you know, I never forgot, you know, the, the demonstrations and I've followed you ever since. And so, you know, there's few people, JP, Rip. Um, Dr. Doug Lyle, Dr. Michael Clapper, that have been a part of what the, the, the knowledge base that I use to take charge of my life. And you were absolutely a part of that. So oh, I just you. thank you from thank the bottom you. of my heart. You, thank you so much. And, you know, you mentioned earlier, you were Jewish, well, your parents must be very proud now. They must be telling. Oh, oh, yes, <laughs> they are very, very much. Yeah. And my whole family is plant-based now. So my brother, my mom, my dad, my sister, it's been an amazing thing. Way to go. Well, th yeah. thank you. It was so great. I'm so glad that, that you were able to come on and tell everybody about this. And I, I can't wait to read. I can't wait until one day, like it's in the medical literature of this study. You know, I'm so excited about it. That's going to well, be thank amazing. Thank you so much. And if yeah. today wasn't as inspiring, which how could it not be? We have another similar, not, not similar story, but in a way, somebody that's lost a tremendous amount of weight plant-based. We have Chuck Carroll on the show. Chuck! Isn't he I love great? Him. He's yeah. amazing. You guys, you, if you, you, you got to come back and listen to Chuck Carroll's story. Chuck is a, is an amazing human. Yeah. You guys are so inspiring. That's why I do this show really to, 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 to inspire you guys. And thank you for watching. And thank you so much, Adam. Thank you. Appreciate Take it.